Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, goalless at Goodison in a game that put the meh into Merseyside derby. But elsewhere, there was drama. Newcastle outplaying the Blades. Arsenal, their trip to the seaside ruined by hungry seagulls. And a keeper stretched off with a serious injury. Roy Keane not thought to have been involved. We round up all the key points, enjoy some blasts from the past and get the latest on the Championship and Europe too. It's all in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Mmm, sure feels good, right? Close your eyes. Could almost be back to normal. First weekend of the English game returning Premier League and Championship. And I'm delighted to say that here to review it, we've got a classic lineup for your listener. We've got that Matt Davis Adams. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. Also here, Michael Cox. Hi, James. And joining us from... Where are you joining us from? Daniel Story. <laughs> yeah, I'm joining you from near Loughborough. Hello, James. Mm, OK. June 21st, the longest day. And it sure felt like it through much of that Merseyside <laughs> derby, eh? Matt, you missed the first half because you've been working. Um, mm. do, you, do you guys want to fill... Matt, in on what happened in, in the first 45 minutes, Daniel? Uh, Liverpool dominated possession, but without Andrew Robertson, and I guess, although it felt to a slightly lesser extent, Mohamed Salah kind of were unable to produce either the overlaps or those crossfield passes from fullback to fullback that we know and love. And Everton were kind of comfortable, really. I, I don't think until that tip over the bar that was in the last five minutes in the free kick. Jordan Pickford didn't really have to make a proper save or match. In fact, Alisson had to, was, was the busier goalkeeper. And yeah, that first half was, I think it was about Arsenal, we use the term sterile domination. Um, it kind of felt like that at times, but albeit from a side that didn't really need to win. Mm. 47 humans have gone into space since Everton last defeated Liverpool. That from Duncan Alexander. Of course, they did come close, though. From the 79th minute on, there was a, a series of chances involving, well, mainly Richarlison on, on Day and Lovren, which had uh, Jamie Carragher, no doubt, muttering under his breath about throwing punches at people. What was behind that sudden Everton revival, Michael? Um, I don't mean to be too harsh, but I think the introduction of Day and Lovren kind of contributed to it. Um, I thought Everton did OK. I thought their defensive shape was quite good and... And Richardson and Calvert-Lewin have a really good relationship. A lot of people have credited Ancelotti with playing 4-4-2 and playing them up there together. But it was Duncan Ferguson, really, who changed the shape and got that result against Chelsea, which I think both in terms of the shape on the pitch and the vibe off the pitch really gave Everton quite an important boost. So I wasn't particularly convinced with Liverpool's shape. I think without both Salah and Robertson, they, they lacked a lot of their width and drive down the flanks. I think, obviously, Milner and, and then Gomez are right-footers, can't really stretch the play. Minamino is a very good player, but I can't really see him uh, playing that right-sided role very well, just because he wants to come towards play rather than going behind. So yeah, it was it was a little bit flat from from Liverpool and, and Everton, probably with the better chances to win it near the end. Patrick Woods has the big question: Mike Dean's lockdown beard, yay or nay? Matt, did you catch that? I did, yeah, of course. I mean, I was lucky enough to have seen several clips of it on Twitter on my way home. But yeah, it was. 
It was good. I mean, it's it's pipped for me by Alexander Mitrovic's lockdown hair, but it's certainly wow. in, in the top five lockdown uh, hairstyle, facial hair things that we've seen this weekend. Okay, because Owen Maynard wants to know what is your preferred lockdown look? You've already said Mitrovic and uh, Mike Dean. He offers Adama Traore, Soyonshu and Andy Carroll. Hard to look past Andy Carroll here. Yeah, the, the Jeff from Biker Grove tribute uh, from from Carol, uh, <laughs> who, to be fair, looked quite good when he came on, which is, with no offence intended, not necessarily what I expect from Andy Carroll after three months with no football. All right, that was a real makeover. He looked like an actual footballer. Daniel, do you remember what Jeff's surname was in Boca Grove? Oh, no. It's like the quiz all over again, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what was it, Michael? He was fittingly Keegan. Oh, uh, of course. Well, it's been a red-hot day of football action. Where does that leave the title race? Well, Man City will be taking on Burnley Monday evening. If Man City don't win that game, and by the way, Burnley's last two visits to the Etihad saw them beaten 5-0 on both occasions, then a victory for Liverpool against Crystal Palace on Wednesday. We'll see them win the title after three decades, etc. and so on. Hey, joining us on the line now from Goodison is Julian Laurence. Jules, so you got in. Was it tough? And what was it like once you were in there? So, you know, it wasn't tough. The uh, the French TV channel that uh, I work for has has the rights, although it's, a, it's more limited than the written press. But, it, yeah, it still feels very strange. Like it was, uh, you know, at the Etihad for the for the City-Arsenal game. It feels almost like you, you play in a hospital. Everybody has the mask. And you can hear ev- what everybody is saying, the players, the manager, although he echoes a lot, I think, especially in, in, in certain grounds. But, yeah, I think we, I guess we need a bit more time to get used to it, really. Did you find yourself underperforming without a crowd to keep you sharp? <laughs> That's, I hope not. I hope they, they'd be happy by my, uh, with my contribution. It's, it's not, it's not, you know what I find, actually? Um, easier to concentrate on the game in itself with, with the tactics and what the players are doing and the movement, especially off the ball, the formation and all of that, more than when they are fans and there's a lot of noise. And, and I, I find it easier to concentrate for us to, to cover a game and to, to, you know, to work out what's happening and, and to analyse it more now with no fans than with fans. But do you think maybe for the, the two teams that that was possibly why it was a kind of underwhelming Merseyside derby this one? Yeah, certainly. So what was really strange, James, there was a lot of police. The police force, were, it was massive. If you compare it with, with the City Arsenal game where I was as well, where there was hardly no police there. Of, of course, this is different because it's a derby and, and it's big. And, and for a long time, we thought maybe this game would be played somewhere else. And maybe we thought this game was going to clinch the title for Liverpool. So, of course, there was more at stake. Uh, but there was loads of police. The helicopter was going round over the stadium for easily two hours before kickoff you had the police on the horses and everything and you had a, you had a few fans there and there but it was not not massive and maybe they didn't really know what to expect and and maybe yeah maybe the fact there was no fans didn't really help the, 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 there was no rhythm and maybe the fact that where Liverpool played they need a bit more time to 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 just get up to the fitness and the kind of rhythm that they usually have especially with the counter press and things like that You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Get 40% off your annual subscription and in-depth coverage of each and every Premier League club when you subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash totally40. Julian Lawrence, that was colourful. Jules just uh, fresh out of Goodison. 
Now, uh, I mentioned that Liverpool could win the title against Palace. Did you know that Palace was actually the last team to win at Anfield in the Premier League 1,156 days ago? That was Sam Allardyce's Eagles. And they won 2-1 there, thanks, thanks to that brace from Christian Menteke. Now you remember. That was April 2017. Palace, in their current iteration, under Roy Hodgson with his new rascal hairdo, uh, are looking pretty fine as well. What what are the odds of them going there and springing a bit of an upset? Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that at Anfield. I think for a while they had a record where they were the most recent side to win at Anfield, Old Trafford, Emirates and Etihad. Not sure that is still standing, but it shows the fact that, you know, they've traditionally, or over the last three or four years, been better away from home uh, than they have been at Selhurst Park, in part because they've got a couple of really good counter-attacking players and have tended to struggle when the opposition have, have men part behind the ball. But yeah, they looked uh, very decent on uh, on Saturday night. Probably the only side we've seen who have actually started the game strongly and scored, well, twice before half-time. Um, I wouldn't bet on them defeating Liverpool. But yeah, maybe they're the, the kind of side that uh, could cause them problems. I mean, we saw tonight Liverpool didn't look particularly well-equipped to break down a deep defence. It hasn't been a problem for them throughout this season, but I think that has relied on kind of good passing combinations and, and maybe that's a little bit uh, difficult to kind of uh, start from zero after this uh, enforced break. Well, indeed. Palace on a run of four straight victories, most recent of which was, of course, their 2-0 win away at Bournemouth on Saturday. Loads more football to come, listener, on this Totally Football Show. Next up, uh, Gwenduzi... Uh, grabbing more pay. We'd all like to do that, right, workers? And the Spurs Man United. So, Gary, not your day today. Where did it all go wrong? Well, I think on balance we were the better team, actually. But, Gary, you lost 9-0. Well, yeah, if you look at the scoreline, sure, but, you know, we had a lot of injuries. Uh, the pitch was very heavy. The wind was against us in both halves. And uh... At Paddy Power, we know managers' excuses are one of those things that drive you bananas about football. But after a few months without the beautiful game... Well, everyone's entitled to their say, aren't they? Ah, football is back. All is forgiven. Paddy Power. 18plusbegumbleaware.org Listener, last week we told you all about our sponsor Gymshark, who help over 15 million men and women around the world get their sweat on with their amazing range of functional training gear that'll ensure you perform at your maximum potential. Whether you want something for your run, your weight regime, or for when you hit the rowing machine, there's something for you. Just check out the range for yourselves at gymshark.com slash the totally football show and make sure you mark down 7pm UK time on Thursday the 25th of June in your diary because Gymshark will be running a 24-hour flash sale with up to 50% off selected lines. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Okay, earlier on in this round, long time ago now actually, on Friday, massive game in the race for top four, five. Spurs taking on Man United. Spurs opening the scoring, Bergwijn with the goal, Harry Maguire and David De Gea not covering themselves in glory and Roy Keane's head almost exploding at like half-time. And I am sick to death of this goalkeeper. I would be fighting him at half-time. There's no getting away from that. I would be swinging punches at that guy. Roy Keane there. Hmm, any thoughts? Daniel? Of all the summers to sell David De Gea, this is probably the, the least likely, I think, with the new 
kind of austerity of transfer budgets, which, which I suspect is is going to be enforced right across Europe. Um, there are only one or two clubs who would buy him anyway, and I'm not sure they will have enough money or enough need to spend that money on on a goalkeeper. So I think he's probably going to stay for a while. And if you're going to keep him, he will start. I've got no doubt of that. I don't see any value in, in dropping him, really. I think Dean Henderson is a good goalkeeper, but I think it helps him being at Sheffield United at the moment rather than being at Manchester United. I think his reputation will never be higher because he does make mistakes. He made a couple of horrendous mistakes in the under-21 Euros last summer and he's made the odd one at Sheffield United. So I think it helps him to be where he is, but I guess they've got a decision to make down the line, but I still think the hair will stay as number one for a while. He's got a strange record there this season, obviously as a defence in front of him too, but only two clean sheets in, in 15 away games in the Premier League this season. And it was kind of enhanced that error in this match because, as they mentioned on commentary, he'd been so brilliant in in the um, United game against Spurs at Wembley last season when he was kind of in, in peak De Gea form and, and made a lot of those saves with his, with his feet that day. And, and it felt like this was one, the Bergwijn goal was one that he should have done similar with here. So... Yeah, he looks like a player out of form, but I agree with Daniel. I think it's it's a lot to say for Henderson that all of a sudden he's a more viable proposition to be Manchester United's first choice goalkeeper than than David De Gea. Yeah, the thing that worries me with De Gea is that he's made so many errors and they're different types of errors as well. It's not to me it doesn't strike me as like a technical problem where he's he's bad with low shots or he's bad on crosses. I mean, he's he's made a real variety of errors and you know, when De Gea first came to Manchester United, there were a couple of areas of his game that weren't particularly strong. But he's always been a good shot stopper. And I just can't really see an excuse for letting that shot in at the weekend. Um, on Friday night, I should say. I mean, it's one of those goals where the first time you see it, you think it's a wonder goal. The second time you see it, you're like, ah, it's not that good. And the third time you see it, you don't really know whether to blame Harry Maguire or, or De Gea more for that. Because I thought the way Maguire got left behind so... I mean, he was miles away from Bergwijn after one little change of direction. It was quite remarkable. We know that Maguire is not the quickest and he has to compensate for that with good positioning, good body shape. But, I mean, to get to get left behind to that extent, I thought was really worrying from his perspective. So, yeah, yeah. it was, I think, a poor goal to concede rather than, uh, as I'd initially thought, a moment of magic. How, how happy should Mourinho be with the point, but also Spurs' performance Classic Mourinho second half from him. Their last shot target, I think, came half an hour into the game. And after that, it was just sit back. I just thought Spurs came off terribly from that second half, or Mourinho did in particular. I mean, they just let the pressure build increasingly, increasingly. And Mourinho's had teams in the past where he could do that because his centre-back pairing was so solid that they could kind of defend for 45 minutes. Spurs' record of clean sheets this season is absolutely woeful and we saw eventually that one of the Merrick Dyer made a mistake. I couldn't really understand why he didn't make changes and introduce some more counter-attacking threat and in particular introduced some more threat from the centre-forward because Kane looks desperately short of full fitness. No shame in that. It's been a you know, he's been injured and we've had this break, so there's going to be some players that are out of shape. But I think you've just got to accept that. You know, 55, 60 minutes onwards, he did absolutely nothing. And I thought he was crying out for Spurs to introduce maybe Sessegnon or someone else who could play on the wing and put Son up front where he could stretch United and go in behind, especially after we'd seen Maguire struggling so badly in terms of speed. So, yeah, I, I thought that was, you know, if you're looking for an argument that Mourinho is is no longer the tactician that he used to be. I thought that was a great example because I thought Spurs brought on the, the equaliser and were probably slightly fortunate to get away with not losing the game. 
Yeah, I think Mourinho's uh, problem between now and the end of the season is that he had his excuses nicely lined up before we had the break. You know, I haven't had a pre-season with these players. Uh, Harry Kane's injured, Son's injured, uh, Sissoko's injured. Well, all those players are back now and he has effectively had a pre-season with them. Um, the Kane thing was interesting for me. I, I think I've been slightly guilty. Um, I, I was doing this with Loftus-Cheek actually before the Chelsea game today of thinking, well, there's a huge benefit for people like Loftus-Cheek and Harry Kane because you come back from an injury and people say, well, you're, you're lacking match fitness, you're lacking match sharpness. Well, so was everybody else going into this game because nobody else had played for three months either. But it was really stark that Kane and Loftus-Cheek both looked so far off the pace having been out for so long. So maybe it's just... Maybe it's just not fair to expect Harry Kane to be even at 60-70% of his capacity yet when he hasn't played for so long, just because nobody else has played for a long time either. As for United, Paul Pogba reminding everyone that he's a bit of a baller when he finally did come on. Paul Cooney among those suggesting that uh, Solskjaer should have introduced him a little bit earlier. It, I mean, it was great, Daniel, to see him play that well after so long out. Yeah, and with a point to prove, that's the thing. You know, he, he when he has a point to prove, he he demands the ball, which is exactly what United needed in that situation. Someone to go past a player and to to look after the ball when they've done it. And we saw that for the for, you know for the penalty incident. The big question is whether they can start games like that with the with the kind of stuttering of those clubs above them. I think it might be worth Solskjaer going for that kind of not all out attack, but certainly. Attack as their best form of defence. If they invite, I don't think they're good enough at the moment with with Maguire and with with the hair in the form he is to invite teams onto them. I think they're better off on the front foot. And by playing the two of those, they will automatically, I think, pin teams back a little bit more. And if you've got that, we talked about it on on the last on the previous show. But if you've got that ability to to pick passes and you've got two creative midfielders doing that, they'll back themselves to create enough chances to score goals because the you know the goals are in that team. Uh, it will be interesting, but I hope they pick, he picks them both against Sheffield United. Yeah, I actually think that went pretty well for Manchester United and Solskjaer in terms of how it played out with Pogba. Because, I mean, if we remember back before the before the break, United were playing really, really well with Bruno Fernandes in that number 10 role and McTominay and, and Fred usually just behind. And I think it would look quite bad from Solskjaer's perspective if he'd just kind of scrapped that and immediately said Paul Pogba's our star bring him back when we know that the issue with Pogba is he's he struggled to fit into a system so I think it went quite well that Solskjaer had to bring him on because the game was getting away from them and then he played well enough that okay for the second game back I'm sure he's going to start so probably turned out quite well yeah it could be um, a, a good week for, for Manchester United I think this, this is not a, a bad point away to Spurs and given what Sheffield United have looked like in the two games that, that they've played you would expect Manchester United to, to beat them at Old Trafford in midweek and then after that Manchester United don't face anyone in the top eight till they go to Leicester on the last day so there really is a good opportunity for them to either cement fifth place if that's going to be good enough or, or try and make up some ground on Chelsea which obviously they have lost this weekend. As it stands they're five points behind Chelsea and fifth level with Wolves who, in contrast to Sheffield United, who are two points behind Man United and Wolves, uh, Wolves do look in form. Then two points further back from the Blades, you've got Spurs and Palace. Palace, just four points off potential Champions League. And another two points behind all of them, six points off fifth, are Arsenal after their 2-1 defeat at the Amex. The Seagulls getting their first win of 2020. Neil Mopé in the 95th minute with the winning goal. Arsenal losing the match and their keeper too because, of course, Burton Leno got injured in a clash with Mopé. 
Shall we begin with the afters there? Uh, Mope giving a kind of fairly frank explanation that uh, Guendouzi had been, well, essentially he had chat and got banged. <laughs> yeah, and it, that is a little bit of a theme with, with Guendouzi. He had a, some sort of spat with, with Mikel Arteta and the accusation, I think, was that he kind of talks a good game and um, but doesn't necessarily walk the walk on the pitch. And I think we kind of saw the same again. You know, I saw Arsenal fans were incredibly frustrated that their team seemed to show more passion after the final whistle than they had in the 20 minutes previous to the final whistle. And, and that was why they lost the game. They have this ability or this tendency to kind of clam up and respond poorly to, to any kind of pressure. And, you know, Brighton are not a side in form and they're not a side who who really have, have you know, have ground out results in the last five, ten minutes of games. And Arsenal should have been, even having conceded the equaliser, should have been on the front foot and and clearly they weren't. So, yeah, it, it does feel like two fairly significant steps back for Arteta and it will be incredibly frustrating for him, I'm sure. Just on Arsenal clamming up, as, as Daniel mentioned, Graham Potter said, said after the game that the players deserved praise because it's difficult to come from behind without a crowd to spur you on. And I thought, well, if you were going to try and do that against any team, Arsenal would be pretty high up on the list that you would think you'd be capable of doing that. And not, you know, there's a sort of perceived soft underbelly there, but but as we saw at the end of the game, they can be got at, and and that was what Morpé was alluding to with with Gwen Doozy in his in his post match quotes. And I hope that because there's been some kind of pushback from that, that that doesn't put Morpé off doing more post match interviews because it's always really refreshing when you hear a footballer say something interesting in one of those and, and that's what he did. Do you feel that the post-match interviews in general have been more interesting since the uh, restart, possibly because of the different surroundings or the fact that there's not a million cameras around, it's just one-on-one? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, it's not unusual for Premier League managers to do, I think it's 17 different post-match interviews uh, after a game which is extraordinary. And as somebody who has quite often been number 17 out of 17 in that line to do the interview, you don't get anything interesting out of them. I know in, in, in NFL, I believe that the coaches just go to a plinth and take questions and that's it. And, and that's what you use. And that's always seemed a much more sensible way of doing things to me. And maybe that'll be one of the things that does change as a, as a result of this, because some of these changes we're seeing, are, I'm pretty sure will become permanent. And, and that wouldn't necessarily be a bad one. Will water breaks be one of them? Yeah, let's hope not. <laughs> Loads of people writing in about water breaks. Enigma 57, do you think these water breaks are just a way to get timeouts in the game? And that red-haired dude suggests we saw a few goals scored directly after water breaks. Will this be taken more advantage of as we head towards the end of the season, Michael? Have you noticed that? Yeah, I mean, I, I was at Fulham Brentford yesterday, which um, was a reasonably interesting game. And, and the most interesting thing was that it completely turned with the water breaks. It was two halves of two halves, if that makes sense. And eventually... Both sides dominated two quarters. Um, so, yeah, I think it's had a massive impact. And I, I don't think it's been... I don't think it's worked particularly well. I think it really has killed the momentum. I completely understand the reason for it and I don't particularly object to it. And I think with the with the temperatures coming this week, it'll be completely necessary. It's certainly injected something different into the game. Am I making this up? Or, or when we had water breaks in previous tournaments, did there not have to be a certain temperature reached before they deemed it suitable to have a water break? So it, is there a reason why that's not been used in the Premier League? It's also odd that, you know, for a lot of for a lot of seasons we've played in August, which is one of, if not the warmest month in in England. So it's not as if it's not as if this June is any has been any warmer so far than normal 
August, I don't think. It's an odd is it one, not to it? do with the conditioning of the players that normally in August they would have come from a full pre-season and therefore would be better adjusted to playing in high temperatures? In, in, on a related note, Daniel's grimacing at that one, um, how many water breaks would it take to make Arsenal a top four or five contender? Are those days gone for now? I, I saw those tweets, people asking that question. I kind of di- I kind of thought about it. I suppose we are hardwired. We're all of a, you know, all three guests of a similar-ish age. And we are kind of hardwired to consider certain teams as top six or top four or even title contenders. And it, it is unthinkable for me to go into a season assuming that Arsenal won't finish in the top six or at least get close. But they are testing our patience on that because they've won twice away from home this season, which is pitiful really I mean only Norwich have won fewer away games and that's I know they've drawn plenty but that's not good enough and it's not good enough for us to consider them as top six hopefuls at the moment they only are this season because the the competition around them is so average I think um there's a lot of work to do and not a lot of money to do it with I I worry with Arsenal about who they're going to build around. I mean, I think Arteta's done a decent job so far in terms of the shape, but, you know, the players that historically have been good enough to play for a Champions League side, Ozil, Lacazette, Aubameyang, you wouldn't really bet on them being there in, I don't know, 18 months' time. The players who probably will be there are still to prove themselves. So you're left with a pretty minimal group. I'd say probably Bellerin, Torreira, maybe Tierney, even he's obviously very early into his Arsenal career. So, yeah, I mean... I'm. It was quite a, quite a worrying display, I thought, from Arsenal yesterday. Arsenal currently lying 10th, only one point outside the bottom half of the table with eight games to go. All right, then, loads of other action going on this weekend. We'll have a breeze through the salient bits of those games after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Saturday, Saints handed Norwich their fourth of eight and five, a 3 0 win for Southampton at Carrow Road. Watford and Leicester had yet another dramatic finale. What is it, six of the last seven games between these two have had a goal after the 90? Remarkable. So it was goalless at the 90. Then Ben Chilwell scores that absolute rocket. And then in the 93rd, Craig Dawson, with what Steve McManaman described as an escape to victory overhead kick equalises and then there are scenes uh, elsewhere Wolves did West Ham uh, with Triore power a Wolves whose season began almost a year ago remarkable 25th of July and as we mentioned Crystal Palace beat Bournemouth at the Vitality did it break the record it didn't get quite the, the audience figures I think you guys were expecting it was 3.6 million on BBC, which is less than Sky's record. But if you add in, <clears throat> excuse me, iPlayer and other things, you can get to 4.26, which just about does it. But then again, it was Bournemouth Crystal Palace. Yeah, anything to give Bournemouth some extra points with those viewing figures by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> the official apology is on the way, Matt, at some point. <laughs> Bournemouth, of course, in the bottom three at the moment, just behind West Ham on goal difference and a point ahead of Aston Villa. All right, talking points from those games. What do you want? A bit of Danny Ings, who had a marvellous performance. Watford? Triori, even. Or how much trouble are West Ham in? Yeah, I was going to talk about West Ham, who, um, you know, when Moyes re-arrived at the club, bullishly stated, winning is what I do, and winning is not really not what he's doing at the moment. They've taken five points in the last 30 available which given the resources in comparison to those teams around them is 
is absolutely pitiful. It's just the lack of intensity every time. You know, they they are not good enough at defending to sit back and soak up pressure and then look to hit teams. Uh, and yet they try and do it every week. They, they effectively play without a striker. You know, Jared Bowen and Felipe Anderson were both picked and kind of switched positions and one normally played up, up front by themselves, but both looked starved of possession. And as soon as Wolves clicked into gear second half, they scored goals and they threatened to do that beforehand, to be honest. it's. I think they will probably stay up. I think the current bottom three will probably end up going now, but this can't continue much longer. And I wouldn't be surprised if Moyes has to go in a, kind of his second May in three. I just wanted to say about the Craig Dawson goal. Um, am I the only one thinking it's a little bit overrated and that Schmeichel should probably have saved it? Really? Yeah, great technique and everything, but I don't think he got maximum power on it and it was quite close to Schmeichel and perhaps he should have tipped it over the bar. Am I being mean? But it's a centre-half doing a bicycle kick in the 93rd minute. Yeah, I'm only taking that, Matt. Yeah, I'm only taking that from Matt. If we get to watch him attempt a bicycle kick now and he absolutely nails it. Not quite enough room in my box room, but um, (laughs) yeah, if we were outside, do it easily. Michael, you probably want to talk about uh, Alain Saint-Maximin. And moving on to Sunday's games, he, of course, was the, the key player in Newcastle's 3-0 victory over Sheffield United. The Blades' biggest defeat, that, in almost two years. Miguelito Santamontes says, uh, Sam Maximan seems to get better every game I watch. Could he be a target for a top six club, Michael? Yeah, I mean, right from the outset this season, he's been fantastic. I didn't know too much about him before he signed for Newcastle, to be honest. But I remember on his debut as a substitute against Arsenal, just immediately, as soon as he got the ball, you thought, wow, this guy's going to be really exciting. And yeah, he was he was very good throughout this game. I thought Sheffield United looked quite off the pace. They allowed Newcastle a lot of space to break into, and Sam Maximum is excellent at doing that. Um, slightly unusual source of the goal in that it came from... Uh, a terrible mistake, really, from Ender Stevens, which was a shame because I actually think Stevens has been one of Sheffield United's best players this season. I think he's possibly been the second best left back in the league or left wing back after Robertson at Liverpool. Um, but yeah, I mean, the game really changed based upon the, the red card to, to John Egan, which I think was just a lesson in not getting a silly yellow card, to be honest, because it was, you know, it was not a straight red, his second one. It was a it was a pullback that he felt he had to make and probably calculated it in the moment, but maybe didn't calculate the fact he was on a yellow card. So, yeah, from then, I think... I, I tend to find that sides who play with a back three, if they get a man sent off, especially if it's a defender, they struggle to reorganise. And I thought, obviously, Sheffield United went to back four here with Stevens and Bulldog dropping in at fullback. I don't think they've done that all season. And they look really uncomfortable, to be honest. And uh, Newcastle were pretty comfortable. They were doing things like misplacing 10-yard passes. And if you watched it without the crowd noise, you could hear Chris Wilder's pretty vehement anger at the way his side was passing midfield. I have to say, Sander Berger, Sheffield United spent a lot of money on him. And it worries me if if their next step after staying up is to start spending more money on players. That worries me because I, I cannot see what he brings to that side at the moment that, that John Lundstrom hasn't done at least doubly well so far this season. And... There are plenty of managers who have been brilliant at getting sides up and very few of them have done as well as Wilder when they've got there. But that next step is to bring in new players because next season everyone will know how Sheffield United play and they will have to find new ways of doing things. And and right now, Berger just looked... It, it was almost as if they were playing with 10 men. The amount of times he was giving away possession in midfield, it was really poor. The Raiders' voice, they were. Mm, that's true. It was almost <laughs> as if they were playing with nine men. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, the other game on Sunday, apart from the Merseyside derby, was of course Villa Chelsea, which I believe Matt you were working on. I certainly was, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, slightly strange circumstances, but yeah, getting getting used to it. Uh, Chelsea played quite well and then quite badly and then quite well again. Okay, that's a nice summary. <laughs> uh, Courtney Hawes has now scored in all four divisions of English league football. Uh, Dean Smith celebrating his goal. Uh, John Terry, I felt less so. John Terry sighed, really, when that went in, I felt. Yeah, he, he kind of tried to celebrate it, didn't he? But he couldn't quite couldn't quite bring himself to do it um yeah it was a it was a curious kind of a game because Chelsea were, were totally dominant but in a way that suggested that, that Villa's plan was to let them have the ball for for a lot of the first half uh, and then Villa kind of scored a breakaway goal in which none of the Chelsea defenders or other players in their own penalty area at that point covered themselves in much glory by um by failing to deal with it but in the second half, Frank Lampard made a couple of um, important substitutions and, and I think we're going to see the increasing importance of teams with big squad depths and, and making your changes at the right time as, as these games go on. Christian Pulisic, who hadn't played since New Year's Day, came on and really added something in terms of his quality arriving into the penalty area Lampard described it as but but with some quality at the end of it too uh, for the equaliser and even Ross Barkley who came on certainly helped move the Villa midfield around a little bit more and then and then Olivier Giroud who was slightly surprised to see starting ahead of Tammy Abraham I have to say even though Giroud was in possession of the shirt before the before the break um, hit a deflected winner two minutes later and, and, and other than a late mistake from Andreas Christensen which almost let Hotter in Villa didn't really lay a glove on Chelsea after that and it's it's kind of getting more and more difficult to to make a case for for Villa avoiding relegation you know they the transfer business that they did not only in the summer but in January as well looks pretty calamitous Jack Grealish got fouled a lot didn't really do much more it's hard to see a way back for them but but for Chelsea brilliant weekend other than Wolves nobody else around them picked up maximum points and and they've managed to do it and and as we mentioned they've got this five point gap now between them and, and Man United and, and Wolves, which is which is key ahead of a big game coming up against Manchester City at, at Stamford Bridge on Thursday. And they got Ruben Loftus-Cheek back as well. Yeah, they did. And uh, it was great to see him back after more than a year out, but he was a passenger in the game for the 55 minutes or so that he was on, which which again comes back to my earlier point. You would expect that under normal circumstances, but and maybe this is just me, but but I thought that maybe the playing field would be a bit more level for people like him, but, it, but he looked like a player who hadn't played a competitive match in more than a year. But yeah, big boost to have him back. And, and, and Golo Kante as well, who had a, had a terrific game and obviously came back to, to full contact training later than the rest of the Chelsea players. And and has missed the bulk of this season injured, really. So if if Chelsea can get him fit and firing for the rest of the season, they will hope that they can hang on to the um, the position in the table where they are now. I can't really work out what, what Villa are trying to do in that their best two players this season have been Jack Grealish and, and John McGinn when both have been fit. And yet Dean Smith seems to have changed strategy to go really direct and play with one young kid striker who's very good at holding up the ball, but... His whole thing is that he doesn't score enough goals. He's never scored one at Premier League level and he hasn't scored that regularly before. And it just looks a bit self-defeating, really. If I was Grealish and McGinn, I'd be really frustrated at watching the ball go over my head and having to feed off scraps when I don't think it's any better than what they were trying to do before. Well, good for Chelsea. And it should be a bumper edition of the Straight Out of Cobham podcast, uh, Matt, later this week. Yeah, I can talk about that now. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, we'll be recording it tomorrow and it will drop on Tuesday. And like with this show, if you listen to it via the Athletic app, you can get it ad-free. 
Of course, the Totally Football Show is now partnered with The Athletic, where you can access the work of some of the greatest football writers on the planet, including Michael Cox. Woof. Very shortly, we'll be talking about why the 22nd of June is so important. And looking at the fixtures coming up this week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic app. This is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Monday, June 22nd. and We were supposed to be in the middle of Euro 2020 at this point. Uh, we would have been here talking about Italy-Wales. What do you think would have happened in that one? Italy would have ground out a 1-0 win against uh, a Wales side full of pluck, but not much tactical organisation. Really? Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, we'll see next year, I, I guess. 22nd of June, though, is it's quite a historic date. 34 years ago on this day. You know what happened, Michael? Um, something to do with England losing in a major tournament? Absolutely. <laughs> you say it like that, but it is one of the all-time great footballing occasions. It was a hand of God game in, in the World Cup mm. of Mexico. Diego Maradona obviously beating Peter Shilton with, with his fist. <laughs> you know, not like that. But anyway, uh, and, and, then, and then that second goal straight from heaven. Debate about that goal. Barry Davis got it, didn't he? 24 years ago, Matt, do you know what happened? Uh, was it Stuart Pearce scoring a penalty against Spain in Euro 96? Brave man steps forward to take England's third. Banish the memory of Turin. Stuart Pearce. Oh, yes, what a penalty! Yeah, England beats Spain in, it says here, a penalty shootout. Mmm. And this is your favourite penalty of all time? It's my favourite moment in football of all time. Are you going to cry? Because um, that did great traffic for us when Sasha <laughs> went all emotional. <laughs> I, did, I did warn Charlie that I might do a Sasha, but um, I think I can just about maintain my composure. Why is this? Because it's not even the last penalty of the shootout. Gascoigne scores another one for England afterwards and then a Spanish player misses. So why the Stuart Pierce? Just because of Forrest? Um, just because Forrest, but... but more than that, it was about 14-year-old me learning that redemption is possible in this life after Italia 90 and, and obviously Pierce missed that penalty and, and so rarely in any walk of life do you get the chance to redeem a moment like that and, and he got it in this moment and he's a kind of almost a figure of fun among some people, Stuart Pierce, and the fact that he's such a staunch patriot is part of that. You know, he, he his house in Nottinghamshire is about five miles away from where my parents live and he's got a ginormous St George's cross uh, flying in the garden and, and that kind of thing is sort of easy to, to poke fun at. But he does love, or he did love playing for England and, and that was something which had followed him round in, for six years and, and it's not often you can actually see emotion escaping from somebody's body in such a visceral way as it does from Stuart Pierce's then and it was completely overwhelming for him for me, I'm sure it was for Daniel as well. Um, as far as I'm concerned, England didn't even need to win that shootout. The fact that he had scored the penalty was enough for me uh, to make that my favourite moment in football history. And yeah, I love Stuart Pearce. It also definitely helps that it is very nearly saved, isn't it? And if it is saved, I'm not sure he can carry on playing for England after that. I think that would probably have destroyed him. Shouldn't have been playing for England anyway. Graham Lasso was the left back in that tournament, got injured just before it. Pierce came in, and again, that's how he managed to get his redemption. Mm. By the way, do you know what happened 10 years ago uh, on the 22nd of June, Daniel? 10 years ago? Um, I'll tell you. 
It was the World Cup in South Africa. I knew that. And bit. South Africa put France out. Centre, Diaby. Oh, attention, il remet ce ballon. La balle de 2-0. Elle On va souffrir cet après-midi. It was the 2-1 victory for South Africa over France. This was after the incredible scenes that were kind of played out live on French TV, a little bit like a hostage crisis or something. And Nelka had been sent home after a, a bust-up with one of the coaching staff. Then Evra walks off the training ground and goes and sits on the bus in protest and the rest of the team all pile in with him. And then they draw the curtains as well, just to kind of emphasise the point. And eventually a letter is passed out. As I say, the whole thing is live on French TV and handed to Dominic. Dominic reads it. And, and uh, well, yeah, and then they, they crash out anyway and the next game finish bottom of the group and home they go. Yeah, <laughs> happy days. Anyway, none of that exotica for us, but what do we have to look forward to this week? Well, here are the games coming up in the Premier League. Uh, Monday, it's Man City Burnley. All right. Tuesday, Leicester take on Brighton, while Spurs are up against West Ham. That could be... An interesting fixture. Wednesday then, Man United are up against Sheffield United. Newcastle take on Aston Villa. Norwich uh, and their game against Everton is free to air. Wolves are up against Bournemouth and it's that potentially all-important Liverpool Palace game. Matt, you're going to be doing the Man City Burnley game on Monday night. Yes, I am. Yeah, looking forward to it uh, for TalkSport International alongside Jermaine Beckford. Should be good fun. I'm, I'm thinking Manchester City are probably going to win. I'm also thinking that I was talking to, about this with Carl Anker, uh, our friend on Saturday, about how I think that the five subs rule is going to be really bad for Burnley and expose how thin their squad is, particularly at a time when they're struggling to get a couple of relatively key players to sign contract extensions to take them beyond the 30th of June. Carl says that Sean Dyche always uh, busts his data model, so he doesn't believe me. But I think that uh, it could be a bit of a struggle for them between now and the end of the season, especially if they take a walloping off City, which is always a possibility. So you think various Burnley players might pull a Ryan Fraser, essentially? No, it's it's not so much that. It's it's that they from from what Deitch has been saying that the club have been slow to offer them extended contracts. People like Phil Bardsley and Jeff Hendricks are not not necessarily the most important players, but but if we're going to be getting a lot of muscle injuries, players who you'd need around. And and Aaron Lennon is is somebody who's already said that he's not going to extend his contract regardless because he's got other offers on the table. Doesn't want to get injured, and and for what it's worth, they've released Joe Hart as well. So yeah, maybe a little bit down on numbers does look interesting, that Spurs game against West Ham. Spurs, obviously, with their concerns about getting into the top four and West Ham trying to avoid the, the bottom three. West Ham are unbeaten on their last three visits to Spurs. Mourinho's first game in charge of Tottenham, meanwhile, was a 3-2 win at the London Stadium. How do you see this one going? I, I think Spurs will probably win. Um, but we do need to see, as Michael said, in that second half, they were so passive. We do need to see some front foot play from Tottenham because they can't just even if they're not going to finish in the top four or five, and I don't think they will, this is incredibly important for Mourinho's reputation, both outside of Spurs, but also within his squad. You know, we've already heard the rumours have started again about Harry Kane not particularly enjoying this type of football and having to kind of drop so deep and help out defensively and being starved of service. And it, it does reflect badly on Kane if if he doesn't get as much of the ball and he doesn't enjoy his football. So I think Mourinho's got some work to do. They have to try and play on the front foot. And that was going on long before this break. All right, well, that's the Premier League. Uh, the Championship, of course, got back underway this weekend as well. And Michael, you went along to what remains of Craven Cottage to see Fulham Brentford on Saturday lunchtime. Uh, what was that like? 
Yeah, to be honest, the the last game I went to before the uh, break was a non-league game where there was an attendance of about 200. So to be honest, it probably wasn't that much different from that. Um, the one thing I noticed, you know, I was kind of looking out for differences in, in style and also, you know, you could hear the players. I was kind of trying to listen out for interesting things. And I don't think that's been as interesting as a lot of people had hoped. One thing I did notice was that there was quite a lot of joking between opposition players, which I just don't think would happen in, uh, you know, this is quite a big derby, of course, in West London. I think if, you, if you're if you doing that with fans a few metres away, you probably get a load of abuse shouted at you and told to concentrate on the game. But the players were kind of, yeah, just playing in quite good spirits, which I thought was interesting. Nice. Matt, you're the new permanent host of the Totally Football League show, among the many hats you're wearing these days. What else happened and, and what are you going to be talking about in the show this week? Uh, well, we will be talking about the League 2 playoff second legs, uh, which are on Monday night. But championship-wise, Leeds, again, will dominate. We did have Phil Hay from The Athletic on uh, the Athletics Man in the Know on Leeds last week. And he was saying he didn't think that they would blow up like they did last season. Uh, lo and behold, they're going to lose 2-0 at Cardiff on Sunday, um, which means West Brom are top, but they couldn't beat Birmingham. They only drew 0-0, 71 points. They're both on and West Brom top on goal difference. We'll probably also touch on the big game at the bottom. Holland, Charlton, two teams who've had horrendous lockdowns for, for various reasons, but Charlton managing to get a win away to Hull, which puts Hull in the relegation zone. Um, and we might touch on one of our favourite topics of the season. Jonathan Woodgate is struggling at Middlesbrough and beaten 3 0 by Swansea at the weekend. Woodgate said, We were very poor and got caught too easily, which is pretty damning. Matt, you're a commentator. Here's something for you. As sharp as vinegar and as cool as a greyhound's nose with his finish. He decorates the net with a dozen roses with his catapult home. Oh, mamma mia. What brought that on? Well, we'll find out very, very shortly. But right now, here's Lee Price of Paddy Power with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jimbo. OK, listeners, one weekend down, lots and lots of football to go. And here is Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power. Lee, let's look ahead to some of the midweek games, please. Let's start with hopeless Arsenal versus Southampton. Well, Southampton have looked sharp since the restart, haven't they? Whereas Arsenal have looked, well, Arsenal-y. This is probably the most damning indictment of the Gunners. We make both teams the exact same price here, 13-8. to 8. We cannot split them. A proper mid-table clash. Ouch. The draw, which looks even more appetising under Project Restart, is 23-10. to 10. OK, what about Spurs versus West Ham? Hmm, a battle of the managers who haven't been the same since becoming Man United boss. But they're both over it, definitely. We actually see this one a lot clearer. Like an Eric Dyer foul for a penalty. We make Tottenham odds-on at 8-13. to 13. The biggest positive I could find from West Ham's humping by Wolves was that Declan Rice's new haircut suits him. Very nice. They're 4-1 to win this one. The draw, 11-4. to And let's finish off, Lee, with the big one. Four many, that is Liverpool versus Crystal Palace. Yeah, Liverpool's title party. Or is it? Crystal Palace blew Bournemouth away in a 30-minute spell on Saturday night in a blitz that was vaguely reminiscent of Liverpool themselves. Hey, I did say vaguely. That said, Roy Hodgson is an almighty 12-1 to to get the win at Anfield. Something he struggled to do even when he was in the home dugout, to be fair. The draw is 11-2 and Liverpool 1-6 to to finally get the deserved confirmation that they are champions of England. We think it's inevitability. 
You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. OK, a little bit of Europe. Bundesliga had its penultimate round on Saturday. It's left us with two questions to decide. Uh, who gets top four alongside the champions Bayern Munich, Dortmund and RB Leipzig? Currently, Gladback poised to go through after Bayer Leverkusen had a surprise defeat on Saturday to Hertha Berlin. The other question that will be resolved next Saturday is who goes straight down and who goes into the relegation playoff. And that is going to be between Fortuna Dusseldorf and Werder Bremen. In Italy, they are back underway. Sunday evening saw Inter take on Sampdoria. The Nerazzurri sporting uh, black armbands in uh, sign of mourning after the death of their legendary player, Mario Corso. Uh, Inter also uh, sporting a brand new uh, looking Christian Eriksen, who's been in excellent form since the restart and was all over this game in the early spells, scoring a goal which was then disallowed for Kandreva's offside, then setting up Lukaku with a wonderful no look pass. And just generally looking like, you know, the Ericsson of old. Uh, Inter were very good, faded a bit in the second half, but held on for a win, which keeps them ahead of Atalanta, who absolutely tore up Sassuolo earlier on today, a 4-1 win for them. But we'll talk more about Syria at the end of the week, uh, after Lazio have taken on uh, the Bergamaschi, which should be quite a game. Right now, in fact, with a, a pretty busy time of it of late in La Liga, let's catch up with Alvaro Romeo. Hello, James. Hola. Hola, Alvaro. You come fresh from the big game Sunday night between Real Sociedad and Real Madrid. Yeah, what a game. What a game. And it could be a title decider, really, because this uh, week in La Liga, Barcelona was playing against Sevilla and Real Madrid against Real Sociedad. And it was obvious that it was going to be a key week for both uh, teams. And Barcelona drew against Sevilla and Real Madrid beat Real Sociedad at Real Arena in a game with plenty of controversy, really, because... Uh, First of all, Real Madrid scored the, the first goal uh, after a penalty on Vinicius. That I believe is a penalty, but still there is a slight touch on the Brazilian, and uh, he falls in the box. And then Sergio Ramos capitalizes from the penalty spot, and then uh, Real Sociedad uh, equalizes uh, via Adnan Januzaj, but the goal gets cancelled because uh, Mikel Merino was on the way of the ball, and uh, Thibaut Courtois couldn't see the ball very well, which is dubious because uh, I think that Mikel Merino was still a meter away from the trajectory of the ball, so I think the goal should have counted. And then uh, two or three minutes later, Karim Benzema scores the second goal for uh, Real Madrid after possibly controlling the ball with his hand or shoulder. is uh, a bit vague, a bit uh, difficult to say, in the box and then he scored the goal. So uh, there were a few actions that went Real Madrid way. I think that uh, Mm, it's been a week in which uh, Gerard Pique may have hinted that uh, it was going to be very difficult to win this league because uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona didn't depend on themselves, perhaps uh, uh, directing this message to the refs, perhaps directly, directing this, ref, uh, this message to uh, Barcelona's performance. But anyway, I think that uh, the week started with... Uh, a certain certain uh, controversy around the referees sparked by Gerard Pique. And uh, then Real Madrid winning the game this way uh, with a couple of decisions uh, that were marginal going their way, well, will uh, probably generate uh, a lot of headlines and controversy during the week. But the truth is that Real Madrid now are top of the table over Barcelona. Well, meanwhile, back on last Thursday, that 3-0 win 
which was pretty clear and, and, and convincing, over Valencia for Real Madrid, featuring a goal from Asensio and his return, but also uh, from Benzema again, in remarkable form, Karim Benzema right now. And of course, it was that strike which sparked that remarkable Ray Hudson soliloquy that we heard a short time ago. It was a pretty special goal, wasn't it, Alvaro? Yes, it was, because uh, first he controlled the ball uh, in a very nice way with a very soft touch, uh, a ball that came from the air, from Marco Asensio, and he managed to uh, place it into his left foot and then he smashed the ball into the net. Uh, yes, it was a beautiful goal, probably one of the nicest in La Liga. And as you said, uh, Karim Benzema is a striker that did uh, a first uh, half of the season that was astonishing. But uh, from January onwards, he didn't score many goals. Well, after the pandemic, uh, he has come back in form. And I think that the society that he can make with uh, Marco Asensio and Eden Hazard can be very promising. Funnily enough, against Real Sociedad, after doing a good game, uh, against Valencia. Eden Hazard hasn't played a single minute, neither Gareth Bale, and Zinedine Zidane is still rotating the squad a lot. It doesn't matter who they play against. Today Vinicius or James Rodriguez played. Uh, James didn't do well, but Vinicius was uh, key for Real Madrid, uh, managing to, to get a penalty for uh, Sergio Ramos to score it. Well, some other great goals as well. I did enjoy Oscar Rodriguez's free kick for Leganes at Mallorca. And also, you really must check out, if you haven't seen it already, Gonzalo Guedes, who's back now for Valencia, going on an incredible run, which really should be seen in slow motion with storming classical music behind it as he barges past one player after another, falling over, stumbling, but still somehow getting to his feet and piling on towards the net and eventually scoring. Magnificent stuff. He won the battles, we can say that this time, because uh, he got so many challenges, uh, Gonzalo Guedes, on his run to, to Osasuna's goal, and uh, he managed to do it, and uh, it's great to see that the Portuguese is back, because uh, this is his, his first goal of the season, he got an ankle injury for three months that ruled him out from uh, the team from October until mid-February, and he's back, and he managed to take on all the challenges, and uh, still score after a very cool finish in the box. Uh, let's not forget that Gonzalo Guedes was uh, the most expensive signing in Valencia's history a couple of summers ago. But uh, since his signing, he was never able to produce the level that he offered when he was on loan from PSG. So this is maybe the start of uh, a nice story uh, between Gonzalo Guedes and Valencia after what it has been a very quiet season for the Portuguese player. What are the news for Salvador? Well, there are a few. Uh, of course, uh, Celta beat Alaves 6-0, uh, which is uh, a really good result. Alaves, uh, they were losing 2-0 when they lost the player, Aguirre Gaviria, and from then on, uh, Celta just... Uh, played with Alaves as if the team from Vitoria was their toy. Uh, then Villarreal, it was... Uh, they beat Granada, and they got uh, nine points out of nine after the pandemic, so they are close to Europa League places and they are getting closer to Champions League places, so good for Javi, Javi Calleja's team. And then, uh, well, Ruby, Real Betis manager, has been sacked after uh, Betis lost against Athletic de Bilbao 1-0 on Saturday. The thing with Ruby is that they made a really big, heavy investment for, for him. Uh, Betis brought really good players uh, this summer, the likes of Fekir or uh, Borja Iglesias, uh, Aleña on loan from Barcelona, but the manager has not been able to 
give any sort of style to Betis. Uh, Betis is not recognizable for anything in particular. They are not good in possession. They are not very good defending either. And yeah, the manager has been sacked. And uh, I wouldn't say that Betis is in relegation danger because they are still reasonably far away from the relegation positions. But they have to wake up because otherwise uh, they may be, you know, uh, suffering a little bit in July. How much of a surprise was this with Ruby? Uh, I believe I'm right in saying that his last nine jobs now, in each of them, he's failed to last a full season. Yeah, um, the thing is that at Betis, he was given all the chance and all the confidence and uh, a really good team. And I think that this was one of uh, the opportunities of uh, his life, really, uh, after um, having been... uh, basically managing teams that uh, were trying to avoid relegation. So uh, this is going to look bad on Ruby's uh, CV, obviously. Uh, And I think that uh, Betis will reconsider again uh, sacking a manager that uh, is doing well if next time that happens, because last season they sacked Kike Setien, uh, now the Barcelona manager, and Kike Setien did a very, I would say, that acceptable season for Betis. Well, that's magnificent stuff. Alvaro, thank you very much. Look forward to catching up with you with more Liga soon. Fantastic. Thank you. Alvaro Romeo. All right, guys, that's it for today's show. Anything you want to just sign off with? Any kind of conclusions on this first weekend back from the Premier League? I mean, I think the football has been as slow as we feared is probably the best way to say it. But one thing that's been really noticeable, more than the the lack of home advantage, which the Bundesliga clearly has and still has, is the number of late goals and teams kind of saving their energy for the last 20 minutes. There's been double the amount of goals in stoppage time as there has been in the first 25 minutes of matches so far. And the split between first and second half is roughly 20-80. So I think that might continue and certainly for the first couple of weeks as the games come really thick and fast as teams kind of spending the first half now just getting into the game. I just thought that Martin Tyler had a really nice line in the um, the Everton-Liverpool game. I, I mentioned that I missed the first half of it, but it, it doesn't sound like I, I missed much. And, and Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher were kind of lamenting it, that it hadn't been great. And, and Tyler sort of hit the nail on the head for me by saying this might not be top level riveting football that we're watching yet at the moment but we should be grateful for the fact that we have got some football to watch and the extraordinary lengths to which the Premier League the players you know the the referees and officials isolating themselves to to make sure they can take part in this it's an incredible effort the Premier League have gone through. It's not like in Germany where, you know, they've had far fewer deaths and the whole thing's been much better managed than it has here. It's It's been really extraordinary that the Premier League have managed to get this back on. And yeah, it might not be, you know, a, a brilliant pulsating 4-4 Merseyside derby under the lights at Goodison in front of a rocking crowd, but it's it's more than we can reasonably expect to have at the moment. And, and I'm sure it'll get better as well. I think the same goes for our show, probably. It may not be the high quality you're expecting, but really we should be grateful for the time that Matt isolating himself in his little box room there, make it all possible. <laughs> Daniel on the outskirts of Loughborough, sacrifices a listener. Anyway, super. There'll be more of that kind of thing. Uh, when we join you, we'll be recording anyway uh, after the Liverpool Palace game on Wednesday night, so Thursday morning, I'm thinking for you do join us for that there'll be all sorts of other things we'll be discussing in the course of the show for now though many thanks to michael matt and daniel and you listener and of course producer charlie and we'll catch up with you later in the week you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production 
For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddynewsmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy News Media.